Chapter Twelve, Part Four, of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Beth Ann. How I Found Livingston: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Doctor Livingston by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter 12, Part 4 Intercourse with Livingston at Ujiji Livingston's own story of his journeys, his troubles, and disappointments Livingston admits the Nile sources have not been found, though he has traced the Lualaba through seven degrees of latitude, flowing north, and though he has not a particle of doubt of its being the Nile, not yet can the Nile question be said to be resolved and ended. For two reasons. 1. He has heard of the existence of four fountains, two of which gave birth to a river flowing north, Webb's River, or the Lualaba, and to a river flowing south, which is the Zambezi. He has repeatedly heard of these fountains from the natives. Several times he has been within 100 and 200 miles from them, but something always interposed to prevent his going to see them. According to those who have seen them, they rise on either side of a mound or level which contains no stones. Some have called it an ant hill. One of these fountains is said to be so large that a man standing on one side cannot be seen from the other. These fountains must be discovered, and their positions taken. The doctor does not suppose them to be south of the feeders of Lake Banguiolo. In his letter to the Herald, he says, These four full-grown gushing fountains, rising so near each other and giving origin to four large rivers, answers in a certain degree to the description given of the unfathomable fountains of the Nile, by the secretary of Minerva in the city of Sais in Egypt, to the father of all travellers, Herodotus. For the information of such readers as may not have the original at hand, I append the following from Carey's translation of Herodotus. With respect to the sources of the Nile, no man of all the Egyptians, Libyans, or Grecians, with whom I have conversed, ever pretended to know anything except the registrar of Minerva's treasury at Sais in Egypt. He, indeed, seemed to be trifling with me when he said he knew perfectly well. Yet his account was as follows. That there are two mountains rising into a sharp peak situated between the city of Syene in Thebius and Elephantine. The names of these mountains are the one Crophi, the other Mophi that the sources of the Nile, which are bottomless, flow from between these mountains, and that half of the water flows over Egypt and to the north, and the other half over Ethiopia and the south. The fountains of the Nile are bottomless, he said. Sametichus, king of Egypt, proved by experiment. For, having caused a line to be twisted many thousand fathoms in length, he let it down, but could not find a bottom. Such, then, was the opinion the registrar gave, if, indeed, he spoke the real truth. 
proving, in my opinion, that there are strong whirlpools and an eddy here, so that the water beating against the rocks, a sounding line, when let down, cannot reach the bottom. I was unable to learn anything more from anyone else, but this much I learnt by carrying my researches as far as possible, having gone and made my own observations as far as Elephantine, and beyond that observing information from hearsay. As one ascends the river above the city of Elephantine, the country is steep. Here, therefore, it is necessary to attach a rope on both sides of a boat, as one does with an ox in a plough, and so proceed. But if the rope should happen to break, the boat is carried away by the force of the stream. This kind of country lasts for a four days' passage, and the Nile here winds as much as the meander. There are twelve shonay, which it is necessary to sell through in this manner, and after that you will come to a level plain where the Nile flows round an island. Its name is Tachamso. Ethiopians inhabit the country immediately above the Elephantine, and one half of the island. The other half is inhabited by Egyptians. Near to this island lies a vast lake, on the borders of which Ethiopian nomads dwell. After sailing through this lake, you will come to the channel of the Nile, which flows into it. Then you will have to land. Near to this island lies a vast lake, on the border of which Ethiopian nomads dwell. After sailing through this lake, you will come to the channel of the Nile, which flows into it. Then you will have to land and travel forty days by the side of the river, for sharp rocks rise in the Nile, and there are many sunken ones, through which it is not possible to navigate a boat. Having passed this country in the forty days, you must go on board another boat, and sail for twelve days. And then you will arrive at a large city, called Miro. This city is said to be the capital of all Ethiopia. The inhabitants worship no other gods than Jupiter and Bacchus, but these they honor with great magnificence. They have also an oracle of Jupiter, and they make war whenever that god bids them by an auricular warning, and against whatever country he bids them. Sailing from this city, you will arrive at the country of Automoli, in the space of time equal to that which took you in coming from Elephantine, to the capital of the Ethiopians. These Automoli are called by the name of Asmac, which, in the language of Greece, signifies those that stand at the left hand of the king. These, to the number of 240,000 of the Egyptian war tribes, revolted to the Ethiopians on the following occasion. In the reign of King Semeticus, garrisons were stationed at Elephantine, against the Ethiopians, and another at the Pelusian Daphne, against the Arabians and Syrians, and another at Mira against Libya. And even in my time garrisons of the Persians are stationed in the same places as they were in the time of Semiticus, for they maintain guards at Elephantine and Daphne. Now, these Egyptians, after they had been on duty three years, were not relieved. Therefore, having consulted together and come to a unanimous resolution, they all revolted from Semiticus and went to Ethiopia. Semiticus, hearing of this, pursued them. 
and when he overtook them he entreated them by many arguments and adjured them not to forsake the gods of their fathers and their children and wives. But one of them is reported to have uncovered and to have said that wheresoever these were, there they should find both children and wives. These men, when they arrived in Ethiopia, offered their services to the king of the Ethiopians, who made them the following recompense. There were certain Ethiopians disaffected towards him. These he bade them expel and take possession of their land. By the settlement of these men among the Ethiopians, the Ethiopians became more civilized and learned the manners of the Egyptians. Now, for a voyage and land journey of four months, the Nile is known in addition to the parts of the stream that is in Egypt. For, upon computation, so many months are known to be spent by a person who travels from Elephantine to Automoli. This river flows from the west and the setting of the sun, but beyond this no one is able to speak with certainty, for the rest of the country is desert by reason of the excessive heat, but I have heard the following account from certain Cyrenians, who say that they went to the oracle of Ammon, and had a conversation with Etarchus, king of the Ammonians, and that, among other subjects, they happened to discourse about the Nile, that nobody knew its sources. Whereupon Etarchus said that certain Asmonians once came to him, This nation is Libyan, and inhabits the Syrtus, and the country for no great distance eastward of the Syrtus, and that when these Nasmonians arrived and were asked if they could give any further information touching the deserts of Libya, they answered that there were some daring youths amongst them, sons of powerful men, and that they, having reached man's estate, formed many other extravagant plans, and moreover chose five of their number, by lot, to explore the deserts of Libya, to see if they could make any further discovery than those who had penetrated the farthest. For as respects the parts of Libya among the northern sea, beginning from Egypt to the promontory of Solus, where is the extremity of Libya, Libyans and various nations of Libyans reach all along it, except those parts which are occupied by Grecians and Phoenicians. But as respects the parts above the sea, and those nations which reach down to the sea, in the upper parts Libya is infested by wild beasts, and beyond that is sand, dreadfully short of water and utterly desolate. They further related that, when the young men deputed by their companions set out, well furnished with water and provisions, they passed first through the inhabited country, and having traversed this, they came to the region infested by wild beasts and after this they crossed the desert, making their way towards the west, and, when they had traversed much sandy ground, during a journey of many days, they at length saw some trees growing in a plain, and that they approached and began to gather the fruit that grew on the trees, and while they were gathering some diminutive men, less than men of middle stature, came up, and having seized them, carried them away, and that the Nasmonians did not at all understand their language, nor those who carry them off the language of the Nasmonians. However, they conducted them through vast morasses, 
and when they had passed these they came to a city in which all the inhabitants were of the same size as their conductors, and black in color, and by this city flowed a great river, running from the west to the east, and that crocodiles were seen in it. Thus far I have set forth the account of Etarchus the Ammonian, to which may be added, as the Cyrenaeans assured me, that he said the Nasmonians all returned safe to their own country, and that the men whom they came to were all necromancers. Etarchus also conjectured that this river which flows by their city is the Nile, and reason so invinces, for the Nile flows from Libya, and intersects it in the middle, and, as I conjecture, inferring things unknown from things known, it sets out from a point corresponding with the Ister, for the Ister, beginning from the Celts and the city of Pyrenea, divides Europe in its course, but the Celts are beyond the pillars of Hercules, and border on the territory of the Cynesians, who lie in the extremity of Europe to the westward, and the Ister terminates by flowing through all Europe into the Eugean Sea, where a Milesian colony is settled in Istria. Now the Ister, as it flows through a well-peopled country, is generally known, but no one is able to speak about the sources of the Nile, because Libya, through which it flows, is uninhabited and desolate. Respecting this stream, therefore, as far as I was able to reach by inquiry, I have already spoken. It, however, discharges itself into Egypt, and Egypt lies, as near as may be, opposite to the mountains of Cilicia, from whence to Sinope on the Eugean Sea is a five days' journey in a straight line to an active man, and Sinope is opposite to the Ister, where it discharges itself into the sea, so I think that the Nile traversing the whole of Libya may be properly compared with the Ister. Such, then, is the account that I am able to give respecting the Nile. End of Herodotus' account. 2. Webb's River must be traced to its connection with some portion of the old Nile. When these two things have been accomplished, then, and not till then, can the mystery of the Nile be explained. The two countries through which the marvelous lacustrine river, the Lualaba, flows, with its manifold lakes and broad expanse of water, are Rua, the Urua of speak, and Manuema. For the first time Europe is made aware that between the Tanganyika and the known sources of the Congo there exist teeming millions of the Negro race, who never saw or heard of the white people who make such a noisy and busy stir outside of Africa. Upon the minds of those who had the good fortune to see the first specimens of these remarkable white races in Dr. Livingston, he seems to have made a favorable impression, though, through misunderstanding his object and coupling him with the Arabs who make horrible work there, his life was sought after more than once. These two extensive countries, Rua and Manuema, are populated by true heathens, governed, not as the sovereignties of Caragua, Urundi, and Uganda, by despotic kings, but each village by its own sultan or lord. 
thirty miles outside of their own immediate settlements, the most intelligent of these small chiefs seem to know nothing. Thirty miles from the Lualaba, there are but few people who have ever heard of the great river. Such ignorance among the natives of their own country naturally increased the labors of Livingston. Compared with these, all the tribes and nations in Africa with whom Livingston came in contact may be deemed civilized, yet, in the arts of home manufacture, these wild peoples of Manuema were far superior to any he had seen. Where other tribes and nations contented themselves with hides and skins of animals thrown negligently over their shoulders, the people of Manuema manufactured a cloth from fine grass, which may favorably compare with the finest grass cloth of India. They also know the art of dyeing them in various colors, black, yellow, and purple. The Wangwana, or freedmen, of Zanzibar, struck with the beauty of the fabric, eagerly exchanged their cotton cloths for fine grass cloth. And on almost every black man from Manuema I have seen this native cloth converted into elegantly made damaris, Arabic, short jackets. These countries are also very rich in ivory. The fever for going to Manuema to exchange tawdry beads for its precious tusks is of the same kind as that which impelled men to go to the gulches and placers of California, Colorado, Montana, and Idaho, after nuggets to Australia and diamonds to Cape Colony. Manuema is at present the El Dorado of the Arab and the Wamremi tribes. It is only about four years since that the first Arab returned from Manuema, with such wealth of ivory, and reports about the fabulous quantities found there, that ever since the old beaten tracks of Caragua, Uganda, Hufipa, and Marunga have been comparatively deserted, the people of Manuema, ignorant of the value of the precious article, reared their huts upon ivory stanchions. Ivory pillars were common sights in Manuema, and, hearing of these, one can no longer wonder at the palace of Solomon. For generations they have used ivory tusks as doorposts and to support the eaves, until they had become perfectly rotten and worthless. But the advent of the Arabs soon taught them the value of the article. It has now risen considerably in price, though still fabulously cheap. At Zanzibar, the value of ivory per frasila of 35 pounds weight is from 50 to 60 dollars, according to its quantity. In Umyamyembe, it is about 1 to 10 per pound. But in Manuema, it may be purchased for from half a cent to 14 cents worth of copper per pound of ivory. The Arabs, however, have the knack of spoiling markets by their rapacity and cruelty. With muskets, a small party of Arabs is invincible against such people as those of Manuema, who, until lately, never heard the sound of a gun. The discharge of a musket inspires mortal terror in them, and it is almost impossible to induce them to face the muzzle of a gun. They believe that the Arabs have stolen the lightning, and that against such peoples the bow and arrow can have little effect. 
they are by no means devoid of courage, and they have often declared that, were it not for the guns, not one Arab would leave the country alive. This tends to prove that they would willingly engage in fight with strangers who had made themselves so detestable, were it not that the startling explosion of gunpowder inspires them with terror. Into what country soever the Arabs enter, they contrive to render their name and race abominated. But the mainspring of it all is not the Arab's nature, color, or name, but simply the slave trade. So long as the slave trade is permitted to be kept up at Zanzibar, so long will these otherwise enterprising people, the Arabs, kindle against them the hatred of the natives throughout Africa. On the main line of travel from Zanzibar into the interior of Africa, these acts of cruelty are unknown, for the very good reason that the natives, having been armed with guns and taught how to use these weapons, are by no means loath to do so whenever an opportunity presents itself. When, too late, they have perceived their folly in selling guns to the natives, the Arabs now begin to vow vengeance on the person who will in future sell a gun to a native. But they are all guilty of the same mistake, and it is strange they did not perceive that it was folly when they were doing so. In former days the Arab, when protected by his slave escort armed with guns, could travel through Usagaha, Irori, Ukonongo, Ufipa, Caragua, Unyore, and Uganda, with only a stick in his hand. Now, however, it is impossible for him or anyone else to do so. Every step he takes, armed or unarmed, is fraught with danger. The Wasagaha, near the coast, detain him and demand the tribute, or give him the option of war. Entering Ugogo, he is subjected every day to the same oppressive demand, or to the fearful alternative. The Wanyamwezi also show their readiness to take the same advantage. The road to Caragua is besieged with difficulties. The terrible Marumba stands in the way defeats their combined forces with ease, and makes raids even to the doors of their houses in Unyamyembe. And should they succeed in passing Marambo, a chief, Swaruru, stands before them, who demands tribute by the bail, and against whom it is useless to contend. These remarks have reference to the slave trade inaugurated in Manuema by the Arabs, harassed on the road between Zanzibar and Unyanyembe by minatory natives who, with bloody hands, are ready to avenge the slightest affront. The Arabs have refrained from kidnapping between the Tanganyika and the sea. But in Manuema, where the natives are timid, irresolute, and divided into small weak tribes, they recover their audacity and exercise their kidnapping propensities unchecked. The accounts which the doctor brings from the new region are most deplorable. He was an unwilling spectator of a horrible deed, a massacre committed on the inhabitants of a populous district which had assembled in the marketplace on the banks of the Lualaba, as they had been accustomed to do for ages. It seems that the Wenuema are very fond of marketing, 
believing it to be the summum bonum of human enjoyment. They find endless pleasure in chaffering with might and main for the least might of their currency, the last bead, and when they gain the point to which their peculiar talents are devoted, they feel intensely happy. The women are excessively fond of this marketing, and as they are very beautiful, the marketplace must possess considerable attractions for the male sex. It was on such a day amidst such a scene that Tagomoyo, a half-caste Arab, with his armed slave escort, commenced an indiscriminate massacre by firing volley after volley into the dense mass of human beings. It is supposed that there are about two thousand present, and at the first sound of the firing these poor people all made a rush for their canoes. In the fearful hurry to avoid being shot, the canoes were paddled away by the first fortunate few who got possession of them. Those that were not so fortunate sprang into the deep waters of the Lualaba, and though many of them became an easy prey to the voracious crocodiles which swarmed to the scene, the majority received their deaths from the bullets of the merciless Tangamoyo and his villainous band. The doctor believes, as do the Arabs themselves, that about four hundred people, mostly women and children, lost their lives, while many more were made slaves. This outrage is only one of many such he has unwillingly witnessed, and he is utterly unable to describe the feelings of loathing he feels for the inhuman perpetuators. Slaves from Enuema command a higher price than those of any other country, because of their fine forms and general docility. The women, the doctor said repeatedly, are remarkably pretty creatures, and have nothing except the hair in common with the negroes of the west coast. They are of a very light color, have fine noses, well-cut and not over-full lips, while the prognathos jaw is uncommon. These women are eagerly sought after as wives by the half-caste of the east coast, and even the pure Omani Arabs do not disdain to take them in marriage. To the north of Manuema, Livingston came to the light-complexioned race of the color of Portuguese, or our own Louisiana quadroons, who are very fine people, and singularly remarkable for commercial cuteness and stagosity. The women are expert divers for oysters, which are found in great abundance in the Lualaba. Rua, at the place called Katanga, is rich in copper. The copper mines of this place have been worked for ages. In the bed of the stream, gold has been found, washed down in pencil-shaped pieces, or in particles as large as split peas. Two Arabs have gone thither to prospect for this metal, but, as they are ignorant of the art of gulch mining, it is scarcely possible that they will succeed. From these highly important and interesting discoveries, Dr. Livingston was turned back, when almost on the threshold of success, by the positive refusal of his men to accompany him further. They were afraid to go on unless accompanied by a large force of men, and, as these were not procurable in Manuema, the doctor reluctantly turned his face toward Ujiji. It was a long and weary road back. The journey had now no interest for him. 
He had travelled the road before, when going westward, full of high hopes and aspirations, impatient to reach the goal which promised him rest from his labours. Now, returning unsuccessful, baffled and thwarted, when almost in sight of the end, and having to travel the same path back on foot, with disappointed expectations and defeated hopes preying on his mind. No wonder that the old brave spirit almost succumbed, and the strong constitution almost went to wreck. Livingston arrived at Ujiji, October 16th, almost at death's door. On the way he had been trying to cheer himself up, since he had found it impossible to contend against the obstinacy of his men. With, it won't take long, five or six months more, it matters not, since it cannot be helped. I have my goods at Ujiji, and can hire other people and make a new start again. These are the words and hopes by which he tried to delude himself into the idea that all would be right yet. But imagine the shock he must have suffered when he found that the man whom he entrusted his goods for safekeeping had sold every bell for ivory. The evening of the day Livingston had returned to Ujiji, Susie and Chuma, two of his most faithful men, were seen crying bitterly. The doctor asked of them what ailed them, and was then informed, for the first time, of the evil tidings that awaited him. Said they, All our things are sold, sir. Sharif has sold everything for ivory. Later in the evening, Sharif came to see him, and shamelessly offered his hand. But Livingston repulsed him, saying he could not shake hands with a thief. As an excuse, Sharif said he had divined on the Koran, and that this had told him that the Hakim, Arabic for doctor, was dead. Livingston was now destitute. He had just enough to keep him and his men alive for about a month, when he would be forced to beg from the Arabs. The doctor further stated that when Speke gave the altitude of the Tanganyika at only 1,800 feet above the sea, Speke must have fallen into that error by a frequent writing of the Anno Domini, a mere slip of the pen, for the altitude, as he makes it out, is 2,800 feet by boiling point, and a little over 3,000 feet by barometer. The doctor's complaints were many because slaves were sent to him in charge of goods, after he had so often implored the people at Zanzibar to send him free men. A very little effort on the part of those entrusted with the dispatch of supplies to him might have enabled them to procure good and faithful freemen, but if they contented themselves upon the receipt of the letter from Dr. Livingston with sending to Little Dungy for men, it is no longer a matter of wonder that dishonest and incapable slaves were sent forward. It is no new fact that the doctor has discovered when he states that a negro freeman is a hundred times more capable and trustworthy than a slave. Centuries ago, Eumaeus, the herdsman, said to Ulysses, Jove fixed it certain that whatever day makes man a slave takes half his worth away. We have passed several happy days at Ujiji, and it was time we were now preparing for our cruise on the Tanganyika. 
Livingston was improving every day under the different diet which my cook furnished him. I could give him no such suppers as that which Jupiter and Mercury received at the cottage of Bacchus and Philemon. We had no berries of chaste Minerva, pickled cherries, endive, radishes, dried figs, dates, fragrant apples, and grapes. But we had cheese, and butter which I had made myself, new laid eggs, chickens, roast mutton, fish from the lake, rich curds and cream, wine from the guinea palm, eggplants, cucumbers, sweet potatoes, peanuts, and beans, white honey from Ukuranga, luscious singui, a plum-like fruit from the forest of Ujiji, and corn scones and dampers in place of wheaten bread. During the noontide heats we sat under our veranda discussing our various projects, and in the early morning and evening we sought the shores of the lake, promenading up and down the beach to breathe the cool breezes which ruffled the surface of the water and rolled the unquiet surf far up on the smooth and whitened shore. It was the dry season, and we had most lovely weather. The temperature never was over eighty degrees in the shade. The market-place overlooking the broad silver water afforded us amusement and instruction. Representatives of most of the tribes dwelling near the lake were daily found there. There were the agricultural and pastoral Wajiji, with their flocks and herds. There were the fishermen from Ukuranga and Keoli, from beyond Bangui, and even from Urundi, with their white bait, which they called dogra, the silurus, the perch, and other fish. There were the palm oil merchants, principally from Ujiji and Urundi, with great five-gallon pots full of reddish oil, of the consistency of butter. There were the salt merchants from the salt plains of Uvinza and Uha. There were the ivory merchants from Uvira and Usoa. There were the canoe-makers from Ugoma and Urundi. There were the cheap jack-peddlers from Zanzibar selling flimsy prints, and brokers exchanging blue matunda beads for sami-sami, and sungomazi and sofi. The sofi beads are like pieces of thick clay pipe stem about half an inch long, and are in great demand here. Here were found Wagaha, Wamanyuema, Wagoma, Wavira, Wasiji, Warunde, Wajiji, Waha, Wavinza, Wazawa, Wangwena, Wakawendi, Arabs, and Wazawahili, engaged in noisy chaffer and barter. Bareheaded and almost barebodied, the youths make love to dark-skinned and woolly-headed Felicis, who knew not how to blush at the ardent gaze of love as their white sisters. Old matrons gossiped, as the old women do everywhere. The children played and laughed and struggled as children of our own lands, and the old men, leaning on their spears or bows, were just as garrulous in the palace de Ujiji as aged elders in other climes. End of chapter 12, part 4